0: Darmstadt on Air Number sixteen. Dissonance makes things move. Claire Chase in conversation with Marcus Balter. Welcome to a new episode of Darmstadt on Air, the first one in 2021. We are back from our winter break and continue our podcast with conversations that are hosted by tutors of the Darmstadt Summer Course. My name is Sylvia Freidank from the Darmstadt team and I'm happy to introduce the two dialogue partners of episode number 16. Claire Chase is our new flute tutor in Darmstadt and one of the most outstanding flutists of our time. She invited composer Marcus Balter for the podcast, who is originally from Brazil, but has been living most of his life in the U.S. now. They are both based in New York, but met on Zoom on January 15, 2021. Claire and Marcus got to know each other almost 20 years ago in Chicago, when Marcus was a lecturer at Northwestern University, and Claire had just started the International Contemporary Ensemble, ICE. Since then, they are in a more or less constant exchange about the conditions and modes of making, performing, talking and thinking about music today. They also work together on several projects, for example, a piece called Pan, which exists in a solo flute version, but also as a 19-minute music theatre for flute, electronics and participants. Starting from this piece, Claire and Marcus are discussing forms of collectivity and collaboration, scenarios of true exchange and shared knowledge within a framework where power structures are still at work. And they ask which tools we need for unthinking mastery and expertise. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello,
1: Marcus.
2: Hey, Claire, how are you?
0: I'm okay.
1: I'm okay. It's Friday afternoon. And I'm, I'm just so grateful to you for finding the time to talk with me after what I know has been a very intense week.
2: I know actually asking someone how they're doing these days. It's a loaded question in itself, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think we need to be honest about it. Who's doing well? right now, really.
2: Someone actually asked me yesterday, you know, um, how am I justifying writing music in the middle of it? And I I thought of it and I just said, I am not. (laughs) I am just (laughs) going through the motion.
1: You're not justifying or you're not writing music or both?
2: Well, sometimes, you know, both, you know, but when I do, I, I definitely do not try to justify it. It's an illogical act at this point. Yeah.
1: Marcos, I realize I met you nearly 20 years ago.
2: Yes, we Wasn't are old. It,
1: <laughs> we're old. <laughs> Wasn't it in 2002 that yes. you and the soon to be founding members of Dal Niente met me for a beer at the Hop Leaf in Chicago?
2: Uh, yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, and we met for a quick drink about possible programming ideas that ended up being a five, six hour cathartic session in which, you know, both of us kind of shared our hopes and dreams to each other and were besties for life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You were working as a lecturer, at Northwestern at the time, right?
2: Yes, I was. Uh, While I was studying at Northwestern, I taught several courses. I taught music analysis. I taught music theory. I ended up teaching the graduate music review. Um, And towards the end of my studies at Northwestern, I was actually teaching more than studying. And I was, at the time, working as a cater waiter
1: for a living, Super glamorous, I was sleeping <laughs> on my friend Sebastian Houtz's couch. Across Probably making
2: more money than than a lecturer at Northwestern, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and I was running ice ensemble from a computer in the Chicago Public Library. You know, living living yeah. the dream.
2: Living the dream.
1: Well, and I loved that conversation so much, and I love that we, as you said, shared our hopes and dreams for creating new music ensembles and collectives and a kind of community-organized musician movement. And I fell in love with you that night, and I felt in you a kindred spirit... And I hadn't even listened to your music yet. So I didn't even know how much more in love with you I would fall when I did.
2: Same. I had heard of of your playing. I had heard a friend of mine talking about you playing Fernho. That's the extent of what I knew about your playing. But you know, after that meeting, I was like, I I must know more about this person.
1: (laughs) Well, I should say too, Marcos, congrats are in order. We haven't had a chance to talk about this yet. But so much happened this week in the world that the the New York Times five minutes to make you love the flute episode included not one, but two of your pieces. So congrats. I mean, Thank it's a, you. It's a thing to celebrate. In-
2: and both played by you. And I should also note that it also included a third piece played by you and your own opinion. So it was five minutes to fall in love with Claire Chase. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's what she said to all the girls. You know, I, I thought it was interesting and maybe a bit auspicious that Joshua Barone picked your soliloquy, the final movement of Pan. This is the movement in which Pan apologizes for his horrendous, murderous actions and asks the public for forgiveness. And this came out on the day that a current manifestation of Pan, Donald J. Trump, incited a violent mob to take over the Capitol building. And isn't it true that each time we've performed the piece, Pan, the performance has coincided with some kind of major and usually a horrific world event.
2: It really is. I mean, it's funny because we conceived Pan before 2017, so we were not necessarily projecting or predicting anything. And I remember that when we first... Uh, presented a public version of pan in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, that we started to see the parallels and we were not sure on how to engage with that discussion. If we wanted pan to be, you know, directly related to the, the, the moment, if we wanted the piece to be, uh, that reactive or not. Um, but one of the cool things that I found about pan is that because it is, a uh, you know a story uh, that goes beyond morality because the, the 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 protagonist is such a complex character mm-hmm. that it can and it cannot you know it's it's suitable for for so many so many scenarios you know and so many situations that you know it yes it definitely can be seen as you know a commentary on you know for horrible years That we had, Um, but it can also serve as a blanket commentary on many other social issues. I like that versatility of Pan.
1: Yeah. Well, and I'm remembering too that even before the St. Paul performance, there was a pre premiere of the first movement called Death of Pan
2: that. On Inauguration Day. It was
1: part of an anti inauguration event in January of 2017, that Jay Eckhart and others in in New York organized. And it's just so interesting to me that here in this upside down world where performances aren't possible, Pan still manages to show up on one of the (laughs) darkest days in US history.
2: I know. I mean, it's funny also because it was sort of like the bookends, right? So at the anti-inauguration ball that that Jay Eckhart organized, it was the very first tableau of Pan. And now you know coming to the other end of this weird trip um the new york times features the the, the final tableau so it, it it framed you know this whole situation in a in a in an unusual and surprising way yeah
1: well it's been let's back up a little bit it's been 5 years since we hatched the idea of this bonkers piece. I think that's the word. It is a truly bonkers <laughs> piece, scored for an all ages, all abilities community ensemble. It's been five years and a lot has changed in your career since then. A lot has changed in the world. I'm curious how the piece has changed for you. Is Pan proposed, you proposed with it in the beginning, a new form, which was part community theater, part performance art, Part public opera, part public circus. (laughs) You know, we've had a chance to try this out in a number of different venues from like community center gymnasiums to black box theaters to the stage of Queen Elizabeth Hall. And now the music is finally out on a disc, which will hopefully make performances by others more possible. I'm curious, how true do you feel we have been to the original intent of the project? which was to do away with the idea of composer or the performer as master and the listener as a passive recipient. How true do you feel we've been to that and how do you see future performances being even truer to it?
2: I think we are still learning about pen, right? I mean, the beauty about pen is that it transforms itself at every single performance. Um, and also, the oral history of pen grows with every single performance. Um, and what I think is beautiful is that the tellers of this oral history uh, have gone beyond being just you or me or Levy or Doug Fitch, who directed it, or Jane Sachs, the producer, that now it involves people who have participated in some sort of way. Uh, on Pan. I remember, for instance, the performance that we did at the Garfield Park in Chicago, in which a lot of the people who were acting as uh coaches and acting as trainees were previous participants um, of you know, previous incarnations of Pan. And I love seeing that, you know, it, it is not necessarily only a collaborative endeavor, it's definitely a cooperative endeavor as well. We do have people who are very much in charge of, of, of spreading the knowledge of making sure that everybody can be included in the process in, in, equitable, uh, and, and active ways, but that those those hats move from one hat to another and that many more hats are created with every time that we do it. So this distribution of power, this, this allowance of people to grow within the structure uh, and to exist in different roles and have different understandings of the piece, to me, is one of the greatest things about this project.
1: Yeah, and the archival process is also decentralized and shared in a yes. way that is just, it's constantly surprising and um, humbling to me. There was a video from the last performance we did, which was at the McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey, right before the lockdown. It was a short film made by one of the chorus members, a fantastic young woman named Tyga Olton. And it was the story of Pan and the story of mounting everything from the perspective of a chorus member. And I think it's it's the best telling of the story. It's the it wasn't intended as a promotional piece. It was intended as a as a storytelling device, you know, by one of the youngest members of the production. And I just love that. I love that the project encourages that and nourishes that and I love that we as the composer, performer, team are are constantly being put in our place as participants in this and not as guides.
2: And we have been for a while, right? I'm also sort of remembering, you know, our partnership with the – school students uh, and seniors at Riceboro when we did pan for the kitchen uh, two years ago. And thinking of the participants that, you know, helped shape the piece and, you know, some of the most active ones were very, very young kids. I'm, I'm thinking of dear Raymond, you know, who I was so glad that when the New York Times covered it, that they actually interviewed and quoted Raymond, um, who, according to him, if I'm not misquoting, said that the whole process of learning pan, Pan was better than school, and uh, we also had you know some some senior participants like you know uh, King Mervyn and uh, uh, so many others that really questioned us, questioned the whole process, and 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 questioned the music itself, and gave meaningful suggestions that found way into you know the structure of Pan. So I, I love that the whatever structure, whatever. MO that we created for the piece allowed us to not only look beyond musical expertise, whatever that may be, uh, but also allowed us to look beyond uh, age, um, allowed, allowed us to look beyond uh, so many other things, you know, and, and really sort of bring everybody into the discussion on an equal, or I, I should say again, equitable ground.
1: Yeah. Well, Raymond, an eight-year-old young man, was the one who told me in the middle of a rehearsal, Claire, it's not working. What you're doing is not working. I don't believe you. You're not telling the story. (laughs) I don't believe you. I think you should do it like this. And he did it. And I was like, okay, yeah. Out of the mouths of babes. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you mentioned something, Marcos, that I want to hone in on. You made a distinction between collaboration and cooperation. And I wonder if you can say more about that.
2: Sure. I mean, we, we give so much emphasis on this idea of collaboration, collaboration, and and nobody really has like a very clear definition of collaboration, but I think that for the sake of, 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 of simplifying something that is highly complex, um, Uh, I think of collaboration as uh, working together, working synchronously in which everybody is performing functions together. And cooperation is having, you know, a structure. It's having a chain, you know, that some events may come before and some events may come after. Uh, And you understand that you're still working as a team, but each person has uh, a role that, you know, can be prioritized in whatever way serves the project better and that everybody's invested on it, but that there's still individual decision-making uh, within cooperation. You know? So again, collaboration is, is, is um, it equals out all of the people involved in it. And cooperation, um, which may not sound as, as, as sexy as collaboration, uh, what it does is it values an individual, you know, it says no. This 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 role, this task, this 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 mission is of this person, and we're all going all going to support that person in order to achieve that goal.
1: Yeah, support them in community, right? Exactly. Because individualism on its own is well, it's dangerous. I mean, we're seeing that um, play out in the most violent ways in the U.S. right now. This notion. Absolutely. That, that one acts alone and that one can act for oneself. Um, but, but the cooperation that you describe uh, can only take place in community, and it can only take place in reciprocity.
2: Exactly. And understanding what community is and understanding, you know, your place in the community and the, the idea that the, 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 the community well-being uh, and your well-being are actually the same thing.
1: Yeah. Well, and community is another buzzword that um, has been overused and misused and misunderstood. I love Bell Hook's definition of, of community. I love that, that she challenges us to practice what we are trying to evoke, that so often when people talk about community, they're talking about people like them. And that is, that is not the community that we are charged with nourishing and sustaining and resourcing. And you know in the pan process what became so clear to me was that we were not only not experts we actually had no <laughs> idea what we were doing and the conflicts because there were a lot of conflicts in the show I mean between us among collaborators I think also I'll speak for myself just internal conflicts there was so much vulnerability involved in learning uh, this music and how to do this and how to do things on stage that I'd never done before. But those conflicts only ignited when when we got our knickers in a twist about being good at something, being an expert. When we let go of that and paid attention to those moments where eight-year-old Raymond or King Melvin or any number of other members of this cast had a better idea than we did about how to solve a problem or how to beyond solving a problem how to how to tell a story in the most mysterious and also the clearest and most magical way that's when the magic happened and you know the idea
2: of expertise is a fallacy Right? No, it's definitely a fallacy. You know, like when I think of a project like PAN and when I've talked about a project like PAN, you know, some people say, well, that is ne- not necessarily something absolutely new. I mean, look at like what Cornelius Cardew had done, you know, in the past, you know, working with a community, working with non musicians as well. And yes, that is true. But I think that what dis- distinguishes pan from uh, other processes like that. And perhaps it's a very sort of American uh, um, uh, trait uh, of of pan is that we did not only work with people of, you know, different quote-unquote expertises, but we worked with people who were very, very, very different from one another in every single level. I mean, just because of the fabric of this country, you know, like we Touched you know race and ethnicity without even trying, you know like we were developing this working in in New York you know with you know people from pretty much every single ethnic group you know most of the ethnic groups uh in the city, including refugees as well the the the, the sheer diversity you know which was not something that we um Uh, artificially pursued um, that very organically happened and I actually do think that it happened because the doors were there for it to happen made us actually have much more questions much less consensus from get-go than you know a more homogenous group of people coming together to do something would you know uh, uh, a group of you know I don't know British uh, university students, you know, coming together to perform at the Scratch Orchestra, you know, as valid as it is, didn't offer as much dissonance among the individuals as the dissonance that we encountered. But you know, as as it is in music, you know, dissonance brings you know a, a dynamic discourse. Dissonance makes things move. Dissonance mm-hmm. actually enriches things. Love that dissonance makes things move. Well, and mastery
1: is. Something that we need to work actively against, not toward. I mean, this, I think this needs to be, to be said because the very idea of mastery, which is baked into us in our educations, mastering a language, mastering an instrument, I think this is especially baked, (laughs) baked deeply uh, into us as classically trained musicians who work to please maestros on podiums and seek master's degrees and compositions, et cetera. You know, it's everywhere, but Mastery is a kind of violence, even though it's widely understood to be desirable and unquestioningly desirable. There's a really wonderful book, new book out by Julieta Singh called Unthinking Mastery. And she makes the case that mastery reaches toward control over something. And whether it's human or inhuman, it aims for the full submission of that thing. And in doing so, Mastery requires a a rupturing to the thing being mastered. And considered that way, we can be quite horrified about what classical music education has done and is doing. So I wanted to ask you, what, what might actively giving up, not implicitly, but actively and explicitly giving up on the idea of mastery in music, due to the work and the communities that we participate in creating musically and yeah. what beyond pan what what might it do to our ability to teach and cultivate
2: the next generation of creators Sure. I mean, I I think that the, the whole concept of mastery is really complicated, right? Because uh, the way in which we are, you know, critically speaking about mastery, we're talking about the sort of like the, the singularization of a mastery path and the centralization of power. In you know an unbalanced power structure uh, that emphasizes this idea of mastery. So when we think of you know music education um, at college level in this country. The problem that a lot of educators are facing is the fact that this, the, the the typical curriculum, the, the traditional curriculum, does not emphasize musics, but emphasize one very specific kind of music in one way of musicking uh, that is not very open to other forms of musicking. You know, that even though, you know, fields like musicology and ethnomusicology have been questioned um, a lot of these curricular maladies that in reality were very much behind on, on covering different cultures and on, on, when appreciating different "quote unquote" masters, um, but to move away from the term itself completely uh, makes me a little iffy. Because if I think, for instance, of Afro diasporic uh, traditions, uh, the idea of mentorship, the idea of you know the 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 power of your ancestrality is extremely important in understanding you know that lineage. You know, so I I am not necessarily in favor of completely abandoning the idea of masters as mentors. But uh, what what I hope that we can do eventually is to expand that umbrella. So we have many masters of many things that their masteries do not necessarily reinforce one another, but just uh, expose the possibility of understanding the term and understanding what virtuosity may mean or understanding what knowledge may mean in a much more inclusive, in a much more diverse way. Um, I try to do that as an educator as much as I can, understanding my own, you know, pitfalls, my own ticks that I have uh, uh, acquired during my education uh, on doing, you know, basically what we call Western European, you know, classical music. Um, so just to give you an example, this uh, this quarter at UCSD, I'm teaching a doctoral course on music analysis, which is in itself a really difficult subject to decentralize and decolonialize because the whole idea of breaking things into small pieces to understand the the, the, the global piece and this idea of this Cartesian way of thinking of music structure. Favors seeing a very specific kind of music as better than others. Favors, you know, the, the the classification of something as more complex, more sophisticated than others, even when not the case. So what we're trying to do is to look at it from from different angles in which different parameters or different social cultural issues come to shape the discourse. And we're learning quite a lot, but we're also learning that we absolutely lack uh, uh, good language and good methodology when it comes to that. I'm drawing heavily on my uh, musicology colleagues to to help me uh, cover the 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 deficiencies of the music theory side uh, of the discipline. But just by looking at the discipline, you know, more critically, uh, it's it's quite uh, scary how it is unprepared to be inclusive.
1: Yeah, well, the beautiful thing about classical music, and by that I mean all musical traditions that outlive their makers – I do not mean Western European classical music, which, as we know, is a racialized extraction. It's a very, very narrow sliver of this rich, robust, complex, truly classical music history. The beautiful thing about classical music defined this way is we can go back to this very old thing that we think that we know, and we can be unknowing again in front of it. We can be on our knees because it will always be a mystery and we will always be beginners. No matter how many times we've gone back to that same fragment or song, opera, passion, phrase, whatever. And that to me is another way of unthinking mastery. And I wonder just to pick a, a little bit at the difference between master and mentor, which you alluded to. Does a mentor have to be a master? Like can't mentorship be exchange of different forms of knowledge
2: oh absolutely i think that the 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 absolute best case scenario is uh, a scenario of of true exchange you know in which people have you know complete agency of their different roles within whatever whatever structure is taking place. The problem, of course, is the way in which academia is organized. As you know, you know, the the, the reality is if you are a professor, you know, like you are at Harvard, um, some decisions, some very critical and structural decisions befall on you and you only. You know, some 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 things, you know, depend on your will and they depend on your vision. Um, and so there is also a side there that begs for a greater sense of responsibility of who you represent. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly reminded that the whole principle of academia is shared governance. You know, it is not governance; it's shared. Governance, and th- we we pay attention uh, uh, to the the word governance way more than we pay attention to the word shared. So even when we do have you know a, a decisive role, um, I, I think that it 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 is it is on us to understand that that power that we may have as individuals is still a collective power. It's still something that should be drawn you know from collective exercises and collective observations.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that Marcos because there's so much othering and bad othering going on in the world right now and certainly within academia too. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that we we have to take responsibility. By that I mean the true definition of that word, the ability to respond, right? Which is that is the value of a musician we want to be able to be fully present in that moment and respond but as educators as participants in this disaster of a society right now we can't bad other the system we're in positions of of authority in these institutions the system is made by people music is made by people education curricula books are written by people yes we need to change the system The system needs to be changed by people. And that is, I I believe, the cooperation that you were speaking of before, too, that goes beyond collaboration. It's a deeper and much messier, much more difficult, much more self-interrogating process, too, because we're bound up in these systems and we know that they need to change. And the only way they're going to change is if we recognize our participation in them.
2: Absolutely. I think that like one of the biggest fallacies when we talk about, you know, um, unfair, unjust uh, structures, uh, or when we talk about expertise, for instance, that we are somehow promoting anti-intellectuality, that we are promoting, you know, uh, a precarious uh, structure instead, or when we talk about collectivity, that we are promoting the, the death of the individual, the, the death of individuality. And it's really funny that one of the, the, the words that we keep using here on talking about this structures is structure. And, you know, and, and that the the, the the verbiage that we're using actually points towards this, this ways of thinking. Again, I'm going to use the word cartoonish Partition ways of thinking, very much like we think of music analysis. We just are so ill-prepared to embrace subjectivity and fluidity on discourses of change, you know, because they, they may seem wishy-washy when in reality it is subjectivity. It is this sort of, um, you know, arborescent rather than you know, step-by-step way of thinking of, of products, of, of problems, the, 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 the most comprehensive way of examining them, understanding that it is not uh, binary, uh, that is not uh, completely linear, and that it is as objective as subjective um, path, you know, or paths that would lead us to radical change.
1: I love the word arborescent in in thinking about this, because it is so nonlinear. I think about uh, what the late great Pauline Olivero said about if we have conservatories, we need improvisatories as well. Can a conservatory (laughs) be, actually, I think she, she called it improvisatory. Can we
2: have an improvisatory? Or can a conservatory also be an improvisatory? And I'm so glad for the legacy of Pauline. I mean, as you know, you know the the idea of deep listening and Pauline's very first uh, laboratories happened while she was a professor at UCSD. And the way the the Pauline way of thinking, the the Pauline approach to pedagogy, has really you know grown you know wonderful fruits among the UCSD community. So I'm so glad that you know. Many moons later, I'm coming in in a terrain that is ready to be harvested. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, she was famous for asking and then re-asking the question, what are you including in your listening and what are you excluding and why? And there is never a moment when that is not not just a good question, but the question for a musician, If we want to unthink our mastery, it's a great question. And it's such a hard question because we are always choosing to include certain things in our listening and we are choosing to exclude things. We are making that choice consciously and unconsciously on all these different levels all of the time. And all of those choices have creative consequences that we're also responsible for. And it's such a—it seems like such a simple question, but it's such a big question, and you it's, can't possibly answer it or master it.
2: It's <laughs> a huge question, and and it also has a lot to do with with uh, property right? Mm-hmm. With this, this mm-hmm. sort of emphasis that we have on authorship. What is yours? You know, what is your style? What is your music? And how does that look like you? And and, and what is your, your little niche? You know, like, what is your little area? And how much you have to defend it, you know, according to the, 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 the professional models that we follow. You know, for instance, on Pan, I'm not sure if I can be called the composer of Pan, you know, or if you are, you know, a performer and the the other performers are participants you know like the 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 again the verbiage is so precarious, you know the ways in which we talk about it because of this emphasis on authorship and this emphasis on on on, on leadership uh, that we that we put on describing what we do in the music world uh, don't actually allow you know uh in terms of its own lexicon for those porosities in this yet again, structures to exist.
1: Well, and, you know, you've been criticized for your polystylism. Uh, the oh, polystylism yeah. of Beethoven, of course, is, is you know, lauded and celebrated, put on a pedestal of innovation. The the polystylism is of, of his, like, string quartets, for example. But polystylism is, of course, attacked in composers of color. And I, I think about some of the criticism of, of your work, of work by Duyan. Sorry. It will take so many generations to undo the stories and the structures in which whiteness, let's just name it, is considered the only full form of humanity and of art making, and in which white European music is the only for full form of artistry in music.
2: I hope it takes less than that. I mean, I I actually think that we are moving exponentially faster as we go uh, towards a place of 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 greater justice within you know musicing. Um, one of the things that I do with my my students and I find rather uh, efficient um, and effective. Whenever we're having you know, heated discussions about style, whenever we're talking about what you know, someone may like or, or versus what someone may not like, and I feel like the, the discourse is becoming really sort of inflammatory and, and, and anti-ethical sometimes, I tell them to take a breather, to take a break, you know, and to think about what they just said and substitute the word music I don't like that music because that music is X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. Substitute the word music for race or substitute the word music for religion. And I asked them to hear what they're saying over again. And more often than not, they are horrified. You know, at the the the, the intolerant, uh, the prejudiced, and the oppressive discourse that they are carrying, in which they give them license, give themselves license to be that tyrannical, because they do not see music as a political and societal force. That they're thinking of aesthetics as something that is completely removed from the fabric of our society. But when they actually understand that the kind of discourse that one uses within art art should not be this, you know, abnormality, you know, this monstrosity that can justify, you know, atrocities, justify erasure, you know, because it is art. Uh, the discourse changes. The discourse moves away from from that those tendencies very quickly.
1: I'm going to use that. That's a fantastic exercise. I'm going to use it on myself and I'm going to use it with, with my students. Yeah, I think my my dream, my educational environment dream is to make music, share music, teach music, experience music, have the exchange of music in an environment where no tradition or trend or style is central or dominant. Like where musics are free to unfurl because they aren't kept in walled off gardens. And I dream of this environment this educational environment where musicians are free to be fueled by their curiosity and their humility not by their mastery or
2: expertise that is a beautiful dream and i think that that's the that's the the end of the dream where you know every every cultural um and, and and social historical um, and and all kinds of diverse groups can exist equally and where there's no uh, systemic barrier towards them. I I do share and I and I love that dream. But for now, I think that my role at least uh, is to actually push for the underrepresented dreams. You know, I think that it the the equality is a wonderful goal, but equity must front this challenge. Equity must be the first impulse. So while I do wish very much like you, you know, for music to be, you know, the sort of decentralized way, um, for now, until we, we cure ourselves of some of our most dangerous maladies. um, I'm putting, I'm centralizing a little power uh, in the hands of those who haven't had it.
1: Well, and the problem is the racialized exclusion of the non-white from the category of classical music composition. I mean, yeah. you said it when we were speaking about, about your department, that there hasn't been a, a Black composition student in how many years?
2: I think 18 which is insane in a faculty that includes, you know, Anthony Davis, who is one of my personal heroes and now King Brit, uh, you know, and has produced uh, so many, so many interesting creators uh, of all kinds of uh, proclivities, but within composition, uh, yes, there is a lack of black students. And I know that it's not, you know, something that, you know, my my colleagues even are proud of and we are we are you know very actively questioning what may be the causes that are preventing this from happening because there are always causes you know like those things do not happen by accident. there is always a reason why like i i've i've adjudicated so many competitions, you know, and sometimes you know uh, during a competition, people realize, wow, we do not have that many black applicants, we don't have you know black people sending us their scores. And I I used to be very passive about it and just sort of like lament the fact that the representation was low, but you know, within the past like three or four years, I do not do that anymore. I just, I just step on the brake and say the problem is us. Mm-hmm. If this is happening, the problem is is happening right now, and we need to change that. Um, without naming the the, the um, organization or the competition, uh, for the sake of keeping their confidentiality in the adjudication process, I was in the juror of uh, of a, a juries of a, a competition recently, and yes, there was a complete lack of representation of black artists. And I suggested the entire jury to suspend, to postpone the adjudication, to actively, um, solicit application from you know different black uh, artists and to facilitate those applications and for thus then to reconvene and make a decision and unsurprisingly when everybody you know very graciously agreed to do that and we were able to you know uh uh amplify the, 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 the diversity within the application pool, one of the people that were chosen w- was someone who had not even applied to the competition beforehand and who had every single uh, uh, right. It was very deserving to be on uh, at the very top of the application pool. Well,
1: don't you feel that in this moment, certainly insisting on Blackness within the language of what we call classical music is is a way to, as Catherine Yusuf has, has said, to recover repressed possibilities. Yes, it's a way to project into the future, but it's also about excavating what has been unheard from, from our past. Um, and this does not mean simply putting the faces of Black people on brochures, as we've seen every organization in the U.S. do since June in a desperate attempt to... Make themselves look like they've addressed representation, and nor does it mean simply commissioning more work by black artists. I mean, these are things that should have been happening since time immemorial. Good that they're happening now. But that isn't even the beginning of the work that needs to be done.
2: Oh, absolutely not. I mean, there's a difference between putting a black person in a podium and actually sitting down and listening to the lecture, you know. And I think that that, that second that second stage uh, often does not um, does not happen. You know, the the the, the issue of representation um is 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 usually addressed in a rather performative kind of way you know in which you think well i'm checking other boxes i have a black person here and i have this kind of person there and you know now now i look good but you can do all of those things without questioning an, an ounce of your 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 politics questioning an ounce of your practice um so we you know the 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 responsibility I do feel that befall on people who have power, and usually, you know, we're talking about you know white folks, you know, uh, that traditionally have held you know financial, political, and even cultural power um, over other you know groups of people. To understand that it's not only about inviting these people to be you know behind your shadow but it is actually to passing the mic to those folks and to assuming they're in a position of a student, of a learner, rather than the benevolent boss.
1: Yeah, and I feel like we need to go further than passing the mic. I mean, we need new metaphors, right? I feel the same way about the who needs to sit at the table, who gets to sit at the table. It's like, forget the table. We need a different kind of thing that we're sitting around. We need a different
2: form entirely. Um, The table and the mic are the systemic barriers.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it goes without saying, we need to say it anyway, that, that boards need to be
2: completely recomposed. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, going back to our initial conversation of community, no health or no healthy environment comes out of a community environment if there is no generosity. And I think that if we all just learn to be a little more generous, a little more cogent of the privileges that we have, the spaces that we occupy, and with that, you know, become more generous of the, the light that we have, um, I think that everything, everything will get better. Yeah.
1: I think of what the great Hildegard of Bingen said in the 12th century that you're a world, everything is hidden in you. I, I want to fortify our students and their imaginations to trust this and, and to trust that their generosity will
2: unlock those hidden worlds to to themselves to the the community as a whole and to ourselves as well right i i am constantly challenged by my students on ways of looking at things differently and i'm so very glad for it i am so very glad that even after so many years, you know, being in this position of a teacher that I haven't abandoned my position as a student. And um, I I really do hope that I I continue this practice throughout my life of never feeling that I have mastered or that I'm an expert on absolutely anything.
1: Well, I learn so much from you every time I can be in the room with you, Marcos, even in this Likewise. virtual room. <laughs> and in PAN and in thinking through curriculum ideas and ideas of new forms of collectivity, I, I think that new forms of collectivity and cooperation, those are the new forms of virtuosity.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, especially given how, you know, in this 45 minutes that we've been, been talking, we've we've come to realize that this this underrepresented worlds are because of their underrepresentation unknown, the potential for growth in that vein is much greater than, you know, in the veins that we have been traditionally exploring. So the, the, the potentiality towards even virtuosity is much greater if we aim at these unexplored paths.
1: Yes. And if we acknowledge that what we are seeking is, is unknown, it's a mystery. And that's what brings us together. I mean, that the movement itself, which you called earlier today, what were your words, this beautiful sensuous dissonance, that, that that sensuously dissonant movement
2: can only be done in community. It can only be done together. Absolutely, and and if we think of all of this in, in a in a rather uh, simplified way, you know, is the, the the message here is let's make new music, but like really new music,
1: <laughs> yeah. Game on. I can't wait to do that with you, babe. (laughs)
2: Likewise. We will die
1: trying. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending this time with me and with all of our Darmstadt friends virtually. And I love you. And I hope to see your face not on a screen sometime really
2: soon. No, I intend to burn my Zoom as soon as this is not necessarily (laughs) anymore. Uh, I love you too. And I wish you all, you know, much health and much happiness. And we we are going to get through this together. We will
1: indeed. Take care, Marcos. Take care, Clarita.